you're looking at Genesis 35 this morning, you'll find that on page 29 if you're using a copy of the Church Bible. And I want to encourage you to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me this morning as we look at God's Word together. And again, let me briefly go to the Lord and ask that he would bless the preaching of his Word to our souls this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know that you have appointed preaching as that foolish means by which you save your people. And we acknowledge, our God, that it is through the foolishness of the message preached that you do a work of grace and redemption for all of eternity in the lives of your people. And so, our God, we pray that you would take this foolish means this morning and you would bless the ministry of your word and that you would work in the hearts and the minds of each and every person present here this morning. We ask that you would accomplish your purposes in us and that you would cause Christ to be formed in us and that you would give us grace to respond to the preaching of your word in a way that is pleasing to you and that you would increase our faith and deepen our repentance and that you would make us to hear the voice of the Son of God, and to come forth and to follow him and to trust him. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 35, beginning in verse 1, and as Jacob now has uh, just come out of this very difficult situation with Shechem and Dina and everything that we looked at the last time we were together, we now read, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled, from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people who were with him, and there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah... Rebekah's nurse died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alan Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply a nation. And a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken to him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Then he journeyed from Bethel, when they were still some distance from uh, Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, that is, son of my sorrow. But his father called him Benjamin, Ben-Yamin, which is son of my right hand. 
So Rachel died and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem, and Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Ader. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last. And he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, when I think in church history of those saints that God has redeemed and called to himself out of uh, wicked lifestyle, he has drawn to himself by his grace, he has then set to work in his kingdom. And when I think about those that God used the most, it's often those who suffered the most. It's often those who received the largest grace who also received the most difficulty and suffering. And when I think of those figures in church history who are most notable for suffering and yet those through whom the Lord did great works. The one that almost inevitably comes to my mind the most is John Bunyan. John Bunyan, you know, I mention a lot, wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. It was for some period of time since the printing press uh, was invented, the uh, best, most best-selling book in the world next to the scriptures. And you know that Bunyan wrote that while he was in the Bedford prison for 12 years, having been arrested for preaching the gospel illegally, unauthorized in England. But I wanted to read to you just a little bit this morning about how much Bunyan suffered throughout his entire life as God was working his grace into John Bunyan and preparing him to be lastingly useful for the church. One historian has noted that Bunyan was born in England in 1628. In 1644, at 15 years old, his mother and his sister died within a month of each other. Later that year, when Bunyan was 16, he was drafted into the parliamentary army and for about two years was taken from his home for military service. He married in 1648 at the age of 20, but his wife died 10 years later, leaving him with four children, the oldest of whom was his blind daughter. Bunyan married again the following year in 1659, but just one year later, he was arrested for preaching the gospel, and he was put in prison for 12 years. His wife, who was pregnant at the time, suffered a miscarriage, probably because of the stress that the ordeal created. She was then left to care for Bunyan's four children while he spent the next 12 years in prison. Now, I think of that, and I think of what is painted as Christianity in America, and it is a strikingly different picture. And I wouldn't imagine any one of us wants to suffer what John Bunyan suffered. But I think all of us, if we love the Lord, want the usefulness of John Bunyan in our lives. And as we have been tracing the history of the patriarchs, and we've been seeing how God has been dealing with them, flawed men, deeply flawed men and women, as we have been seeing God's 
grace coming time and time and time again to the members of Abraham's family, we have seen that there has been much trial and much difficulty on the way. There have been many stumblings and temptations. There have been many setbacks. There have been many highlights in which the Lord has appeared and strengthened them and given them large revelations of himself and manifestations of his grace. And he has appeared to Jacob, remember, already Three times leading up to this final appearance, he has appeared to Jacob once at Bethel with converting grace. That was where Jacob saw the ladder that came down from heaven that is a type of Jesus Christ, showing that God was going to bring Jacob to glory through the Redeemer by grace. He then appeared to Jacob again when he was with Laban. And he told him that he was going to bring him back to his people. And he wanted him to go back with his wives and his children. And then he appeared to Jacob to reform Jacob's own understanding of things and to discipline him by grace in wrestling with him in changing his name and in bringing him back to himself there as he wrestled with Jacob. And now as Jacob has been making this journey back to Bethel and to the place where God first met with him, as Jacob is going back to the place where God first called him, and he has stopped along the way. Jacob, remember, stopped one day short of full obedience, and he reaped all the terrible consequences that we saw in chapter 34. He stopped one day's journey short of going all the way back to Bethel, to the house of God, to the place where God had first met with him. And his family suffered the consequences and Jacob suffered the consequences. His sons would suffer the consequences and there would be great, there would be great chastening and discipline for Jacob because he did not obey the Lord in fulfilling his vow that he would return again to that place in the promised land where God had first blessed him. Well, as we come into chapter 35, we are seeing that there is restoring grace for Jacob again. God is restoring him again. What a marvelous picture for us. Because if you're anything like me, and you recognize all of your weaknesses, and that you are so much like Jacob, because every one of us is so much like Jacob, you are so thankful that the Lord doesn't give up on you. You are so thankful that the Lord comes with restoring grace. Yes, 28 years after Jacob had gone to Laban, eight years after Jacob should have gone back to Bethel, eight years he stopped and delayed obedience, and yet the Lord comes to him, and he comes to restore him one final time and to help Jacob fulfill the vow that Jacob had made that he would come back to the house of God, that he would, in a sense, return wholeheartedly to the Lord, and that he would come back to worship the God who had redeemed him. And we're going to see this morning just two things. First, we're going to consider uh, the Lord calling Jacob back to himself. And then secondly, we're going to consider the cost of Jacob returning. We'll notice there in verse 1 that we see this glorious restoring grace. We are told by Moses, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Now, It's interesting because you don't know whether Jacob's ever going to go back to Bethel. You don't know whether Jacob's actually going to return to the Lord. You're sort of left with this very bleak picture. Jacob has delayed obedience. He's not fulfilled his vow to the Lord. He he maybe has even convinced himself it's good enough. He's in the land of promise. He's close enough to Bethel. He is one day away from where he should be. 
And yet he is eight years away from obeying the Lord now. And one of the wonderful things that we see at the outset of this chapter is that in the words of William Still, the Lord has a very long memory. The Lord has a very long memory. The Lord has not forgotten Jacob's vow. The Bible says, be careful not to vow, for it's better not to vow than not to pay what is vowed to God. Jacob vowed to the Lord when he first appeared to him at Bethel that he would come back to the land of promise, that he would come back to Bethel, to the place where God had blessed him, that he would remember that converting grace and that he would stay close to the God of Israel and that he would worship the God of Israel and that he would commit himself fully to the God of Israel. And he has delayed that. And here the Lord is coming. And Jacob is backslidden. He is tremendously backslidden. And yet God in his grace comes and he comes with his word and he comes reminding Jacob of what Jacob has said. And he tells him, get up, go back to Bethel, dwell there, make an altar to me, make an altar to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Now, I find great comfort in this because there are periods in all of our lives where we are extremely backslidden. There's not one saint who has ever walked the face of the earth that is not known what it is to have seasons in their life of delayed obedience, seasons in their life where they are not close to the Lord, seasons in their life where they are just living for self, living for security, living for pleasure, living for comfort, living for laying up treasures, setting their hearts on the things around them. That's exactly what's happened to the head of the covenant, Jacob. That's exactly what's happened to him. Now, Isaac is about to die. Isaac is still standing as the head of the covenant. God is doing a great work in Jacob's life because God has promised to bless Jacob. God has set his electing mercy and grace on Jacob, and God is going to follow through. That's one of the wonderful things. How can people not believe in the electing grace of God? It is the only thing that comforts us because if we deny God's electing grace, we have no sure foundation to hold on to. Here we see, why would the Lord come and awaken backslidden Jacob? Because God had sovereignly elected him and set his grace and mercy on him. And God would fulfill his purposes just like the Lord has promised to do in our lives. And it's good news. The Lord comes to Jacob and notice as he calls him back to himself, we see first that there is a need for the word of God. Isn't it interesting that nothing less than the word of God will restore Jacob? God comes and he speaks to Jacob. And that's the way the Lord works in our lives. You know, there is no restoration to communion with God when we have drawn ourselves far from him except by his word. God will always and only use his word as the necessary means to bring us back to himself when we have pulled back from him and when we are living in complacency and despondency and despair or worldliness or anything else that keeps us from communion with him. And notice as the Lord brings his word to Jacob, Jacob responds. He responds. Now, in order for Jacob to be restored to God and to respond to the call of God, Jacob understands a few things. It's very interesting. This chapter is just full of profound insights. Jacob understands that what's keeping him from the Lord is his family and their idols. It's very interesting, and it's a sober warning. Jacob knows what has to happen if he's going to go back to Bethel 
and if he's going to worship the Lord in purity and in truth. He knows that he and his family have to look together to the Lord and have to get rid of all the idols that he knows are being harbored in his family. It's very interesting, isn't it? Notice verse 2. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourself and change your garments. Jacob knows that he has failed to lead his family spiritually. Jacob knows that his wife, Rachel, brought idols with her that she stole from her father and that she's had them with her these almost 30 years and that he's allowed those idols to fester in his home. He knows. The Lord didn't say, put the idols away from you. Jacob knew there were idols that he would not deal with. Now, here's the frightening part. We, like Jacob, can have idols in our lives, idols of comfort and pleasure and success and approval and everything else where we're investing all of our time and energy and money and resources and affections. Whatever we're giving ultimate affection to, focus on attention to, that's your idol. That's an idol. You're putting that before God. And we can know, and this is devastating if we're honest, we can know that in our lives and in the lives of our family members for decades and not do a thing about it. That is a frightening thought. Jacob has known for 30 years that his beloved wife, the one he had made an idol of, had idols that she was harboring and that there were other things in the house. Notice that we're told that he tells them to put away the foreign gods that are among you. And notice verse 4, so they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Now, ladies, he's not saying it's wrong for you to have jewelry. These are superstitious trinkets. These are things with which these women are trying to worship gods or the god. These are, these are relics. These are superstitious things that they had inherited from their father that they were holding on to religiously. And... Jacob knows what has to go. He knows that his house needs to be purified. He takes responsibility. This is one of the magnificent things of this chapter. When God restores Jacob, Jacob goes and he leads his family spiritually. And wherever the home is not being led spiritually and wherever idols are being tolerated and not put away, then that is a sure mark that the head of that home is not walking closely with the Lord. It's not saying that we can control the hearts of our family members, but we can certainly lead them as Jacob does here. Jacob models for us what it looks like to return to the Lord, what it looks like to go back to God. He goes, he puts the household idols away. He tells his wives what they're doing. Notice he says to them in verse three, let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make an altar to the God who has answered me in the day of my distress, who has been with me wherever I have gone. He tells his wives, we are going to serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Nothing less than wholeheartedness is required for us to respond to a call from God to return to him. You know, I think Judgment Day will be one of those days where the most fearful thing, and I think we see this in the book of Revelation in in the church, I believe, Laodicea, to which the Lord says, I wish you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth. That, that a, a half-hearted obedience, a half-hearted desire to turn back to the Lord is not obedience. 
Jacob models for us this beautiful picture. He understands the idols have to go. There has to be purity. The deceit has to go. Now, here's the hope, because you could say, okay, I know I have far too many idols in my own life. I know I'm not what I should be. I know that I'm not walking with the Lord like I should be walking with the Lord. I know that I have failed many times. I know that I've gone back. You know, one writer says we often uh, go and bury the idols like Jacob does under the terebinth tree, and then we run back and plant flowers on them and then dig them up when we want them. That was very convicting. (laughs) We mark them off with some flowers and then dig them up when we need them. Um, Jacob buries them. He puts them away. He doesn't go back to them. And, but here's, here's the good news. The same God who has borne so long and so patiently with Jacob for decades, patiently bearing with him, bears with him even here in these latter years. He bears with him, calling him back. You know, I've often thought over the last year about the, the significance of that verse in Second Peter that I knew as a boy and that we had hanging on a, a wall in our home that the Lord is not slack concerning his promises as some count slackness, but is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That verse didn't carry any weight to me in my teens, certainly not in my teens, in my 20s, even as a Christian through the better part of my 20s. That, that verse carried no weight with me. It carries tremendous weight with me now. Our God is patient with us. He is patient with you because he is wanting you to return to him with a whole heart. He's wanting you to go back to him in repentance and faith, in worship. Um, it's very interesting, isn't it, that there's, when you read the Psalms, there, there's uh, certain Psalms that talk about what is requisite for us to go back to God and enter into his presence. And the psalmist, I believe it's Psalm 24, says, you know, um, he has clean hands and a pure heart who has not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully. This one will receive blessing from the Lord. Now, here's Jacob, and he's the deceiver. He's sworn deceitfully. Here's Jacob. He has lifted up his heart to idols, so has his wives and his children. And yet God is saying, come, put that away. And return to me. Now, Jacob needs something besides an acknowledgement of his need for purification for himself and his family. Notice, notice he, he needs covenant confirmation. Uh, we are told that the Lord comes to him and, and he tells him in verses 5 through 7 that he's going to protect him. That's part of the covenant. I will be a shield to you. And that's what Jacob wanted so desperately. Jacob was so fearful when his sons did what they did in the chapter just before this, and they murdered unjustly the men of Shechem, Jacob said, you have brought great reproach on me, and I am going to be hunted down. Jacob was worried about his own safety. And so the Lord comes, and he says, I am going to fulfill my covenant promises. I will put a terror on the nations around you, because certainly they would have wiped out Jacob's family as he passed through these nomadic areas that were borderline barbaric. Certainly, this was unchartered, dangerous territory, and God puts a terror around them. And here's the point. When you belong to the Lord, though he may call you to lay down your life, ultimately, really lay your life down for the Lord Jesus and for his testimony, not one hair will fall from your head apart from his will, and not one scheme of man will triumph in your life. Because the Lord is preserving and protecting. You see that beautiful picture, don't you, in the life of the Apostle Paul? 
He, Book of Acts, he's going and preaching and getting stoned and shipwrecked and beaten and mob lynched and everything's happening to Paul for the sake of the gospel. And yet, and yet God is constantly delivering him. He's let down out of a window in a basket and escapes for his life. God is constantly protecting him, constantly carrying him through to the end. And God is doing that for Jacob. He's saying, my covenant requires that I fulfill my promises for you. I am going to protect you. And then notice that we're told in verse 10 that he reminds him of what his new name is, what the covenant blessings have brought about in his life. Your name was Jacob, deceiver. Now your name is Israel, and I'm not going to call you deceiver anymore. You are are Israel. You are a prince with God. Your family is under your kingship because I have made you a king and a prince unto me by grace. He reminds Jacob of his new identity as a member of his covenant family and an heir of the covenant blessings. And then notice he reminds him of his promises in verse 11. He says, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. Kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. I will give the land to your offspring after you. There is covenant confirmation for Jacob. Return to me. Jacob says, we must put away our idols. The Lord says, now, let me remind you. I'll protect you. I have renamed you and given you newness of life based on my redeeming grace. And I am going to fulfill all of my promises to you that I promised to your grandfather and to your father and now to you. And Jacob has done nothing to merit that. Isn't that marvelous? He's disobeyed for the last 28 years. And now the Lord says, I am going to fulfill my promises. I am going to make my covenant to be efficaciously at work in your life. I am going to work in you. Um, Now, I want to say this, and then we want to move on to our second thought this morning. And I want us to ask the question, because there is something about Jacob that's unique. You and I are not Jacob. We are not the head of the covenant in redemptive history. None of us are the head of the old covenant church representatively. He is a type of Jesus who is the ultimate representative of the church. So there's something unique about Jacob here. And God is doing something unique for Jacob because Isaac is about to die and Jacob is going to have to stand as the head of the covenant. But there is something very common here, isn't there? I mean, I read this and I think of my own life and I hope you think of your life. And I ask myself, where am I? Where, where, is my, where has my heart been in relationship to the Lord? Am I, am I drawing near to him? Or am I harboring idols in my life? Is, am I allowing my family to harbor idols in their lives? Um, remember, Jacob knew what was going on, and he tolerated it. And so I, I want to charge us this morning that we would take seriously. God is calling us back, wherever you are spiritually. God is calling us back to him this morning. And he's saying, return to me. Return to the place of blessing. Return to the place where I revealed myself to you. Return to the hope of reconciliation and eternal life and glory in Jesus Christ. Return to the Lord Jesus. You know, that's the whole call of the Bible, isn't it? It's hard to miss the fact that the prophets, while God is constantly breathing judgments for the sins of his people, he's constantly saying, return to me. Return to me. Put away your idols. Return to me. I'll wash you. Return to me. If your wife was unfaithful to you, you'd never take her back. I'll take you back. Return to me. 
He says that, Book of Hosea, Ezekiel. The whole of the Old Testament prophets is God saying, I will receive you back to myself. He did it for Jacob. He will do it for us if we will return. But then secondly, notice, there is a cost in returning. Because if we just took the first half of this chapter and we looked at verse 1 through 15 and, and just those parts we've, we've focused on together, it would seem like, okay, that's, that's what I want. I want blessing. I want restoration. I want covenant confirmation. I want the good news that God is going to bring me to glory and do everything for me and his blessings resting on me. We should want that. But what accompanies that is the cost what it cost when God brings people back to himself. Jacob has to give up everything in this chapter. Jacob will lose uh, the nurse that belonged to his mother. Maybe she had even nursed his mother. She's called Rebecca's nurse, Deborah. We don't know whether she's been traveling with him the whole time, whether he brought her from Laban's house, how long she's been with him. But what all we can uh, do is speculate. Verse 8, Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak besides Bethel. Now, here's where we have to piece together what's going on. Why does the Holy Spirit see fit to tell us that Jacob's mother's nurse has died and been buried under this tree? And then we have to ask the question, why are we told of this very heartbreaking experience in which the wife that Jacob loved the most dies in childbirth? And then we have to ask the question, why does the Holy Spirit tell us that Isaac dies? And we have to ask the question, why in this chapter are we told that Jacob's firstborn son has an incestuous relationship with one of his wife's handmaidens who had become one of his wives sinfully. Why this series of tragedy? And I think there's one overarching answer to all of this. Jacob, remember, was his mother's favorite. Jacob loved his mother more than anything. Jacob's soul was cleaving to his mother as a boy. He, he loved her more than life itself, and she died. And so I assume Jacob took his mother's nurse because that was the best way that he could hold on to all of his affections and memories about his mother. And, and every incident in this, notice, it's his mother's nurse, his choice beloved wife, his firstborn son, and then his father. And the Lord takes all of it from him. You see, oftentimes when God is restoring us and when God is at work in our lives, we are going to pay the price for our sin. Notice that, that uh, John Calvin, as he meditates on this, and on God taking away these choicest gifts from Jacob, these are the things that were most precious to him. Calvin says, the Lord often deprives the faithful of his own gifts to correct their perverse abuse of them. So when we invest too much energy and love into some created object, the Lord often has a way of taking that away from us. Now, you can think this is a morbid thought, but I think about God taking perhaps my wife or children all the time. And if you don't, I hope you will after today, because the saints in whose lives God has worked the most have suffered the most loss, because we have a propensity 
to put our affections on created things rather than on God. And notice what Calvin says. He says to correct their perverse abuse of them, but in taking them away from his people on the occasion of their sinning, he promotes their salvation. Why is God taking away those stumbling blocks from Jacob? Because the Lord is going to bring Jacob to glory. Now, this is the least popular thing in the world. I seriously doubt you would ever hear what you just heard in almost any church. But you know what? You better believe it because it's absolutely true. It's in the scriptures. The choicest saints have known it by experience. If you have been a Christian seeking to walk closely with the Lord for any length of time, you have experienced something, something of the Lord taking away because the Lord wants to bring you to glory. It is not a happy thought when we're thinking of what I want here and now. But it is a glorious thought when we think that God will remove everything that we perversely abuse and set too much of our affection on. Isn't it interesting? Rachel had all of those household idols, but Jacob had his own household idols. And the Lord was taking them away from him. Now, I want to say this this morning, and I think it's important for us to come to terms with this. I am not saying God is going to take away anyone in your family. I'm not saying that. He may. He did to many, many, many saints. I am not saying that. But what I am saying is if we recognize that in our relationships with created beings, with created things, that we are um, abusing them in not holding them in a proper esteem to our relationship with the Lord, then we better deal with that now. The way that Jacob told his wives to get rid of the idols in their homes We go to the Lord Jesus, and here's how we do it. This is the beautiful thing. There's only one way to do this. When we realize that Jesus Christ is more glorious than our spouse or our children or whatever we love so much and what is most precious to us, when we realize he is more glorious, we will hold them in a proper place in our affections. And we will want to care for them properly. And we're very, by the way, we are very deceitful in convincing ourselves we're not holding on to things improperly. Um, I often, for instance, have to remind myself that the children God has given me that I love so much, they're his. They're not mine. They're his. And the second I start to treat them even with affection as if they ultimately and lastingly belong to me, I've done the very thing that Jacob did. And that's a very dangerous place to be in. Our children belong to the Lord. Our spouses belong to the Lord. We belong to the Lord. Everything that we have is his. And so this is a, this is a rewiring for us as we look at these things and as we consider these things. And we consider the fact that when God calls us back, we have to return. And we have to, we have to return wholeheartedly. And yet when we do, and even when we do, God often brings suffering and affliction and difficulty into our lives. You know, um, as I already noted in my 20s, I knew nothing of this. I'm, I'm just starting to begin to understand any of this in my life in my later 30s. And if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know that these things are at work. If you belong to the Lord, God works in these ways in our lives. And they're often painful. You know, uh, John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Every branch in me that bears fruit, my father prunes that it may bear more fruit. Jacob is being pruned. God prunes us, and pruning is painful. Pruning is not enjoyable. 
but God is doing it so that we become as fruitful as possible. You know, one of the sad things is Jacob will actually not learn all that God is teaching him in this chapter. You'll see as we go on into the later chapters that he'll have more loss. His sons will sell off one of his favorite children into slavery. They will then be carried into Egypt by a famine. He will think that his beloved son of Rachel, Joseph, is dead, and he will spend the better part of his latter years mourning and and self-pitying and wallowing and loathing and self-pity. And yet God is at work in Jacob's life. God is giving him streams of mercy, teaching him. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to learn as quick as possible. I want to learn as quick as possible how to respond to the Lord's call, return to me. And I want to return to him. And I want to go back to him and I want to acknowledge where there are idols in my life. And I want to go to him in confession. And I want to seek purity in my life, in my home, among my relations. I want to guard my heart from setting my affections on those precious gifts that God has given me. Um, And at the end of the day, that is only and ever possible when I see that I'm a great sinner and that I have a great Savior in Jesus Christ and that I am drawn to him and that I'm constantly being drawn to the foot of the cross where he shed his blood to, to bury my idols out of his sight forever. You know, I said to you earlier, quoting William Still, the Lord has a very long memory. He remembered Jacob's vow and held him to it. But you know one of the magnificent truths of Scripture is that the promise of God in Jesus Christ because of what Christ has done at the cross is that I will no longer remember your sins or your transgressions. Isn't that marvelous? The God who has a very long memory says, I will not remember your sins or your lawless deeds anymore. I will bury them out of my sight. That's what God has done for us in Christ. That's how our hearts get drawn to the Lord Jesus and away from this filthy, perishing, worthless, empty world. And even from those best gifts that he's given us that we set our affections on improperly. The Lord Jesus has drawn us back to God. He brings us home to God and he shows us that even the suffering and the sorrow is used in God drawing us back by his grace. Let him who has ears to hear this morning, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know that these are weighty things and that these are not immediately comforting things to many, but we know, our God, that it is a great comfort to know that we belong to you and that you have chosen us in Christ and that you have promised to fulfill your covenant promises to us and that even when we are faithless, you remain faithful. You cannot deny yourself. And Father, we thank you that you remind us of our need to return this morning. We pray that you would give each and every person in this room grace through the offering up of the body of Jesus and through the truth of the gospel to return to you, to put away our idols and to turn back with all of our hearts. We pray, our God, that you would draw us with cords of love, that you would show us all that you've done for us in Jesus Christ and that you would give us grace that we might hold those precious gifts that you've given to us in this life in their proper place with regard to our affections. And so, our Father, we pray that you would please give us grace to respond even as Jacob did and even more so than Jacob this morning. We pray that you would have mercy on us. We pray these things in Jesus' name.
Amen.